0: Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name is Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and consulting. And
1: my name is Alex. I'm an MD pursuing an Oxford clinical AI PhD and Harvard MBA, and I'm interested in healthcare investing and innovation.
0: Thanks, Alex. Our guest today is Dr. Sachin Jain. He is the president and CEO of Scan Group and Health Plan and HMO, which provides healthcare coverage to Medicare beneficiaries throughout California, and it's currently serving nearly 200,000 members. SCAN is one of the biggest nonprofit organization Medicare Advantage prescription drug plans in the country. Before this, Sachin was Chief Medical Information and Innovation Officer at Merck. He also served as an attending physician at the Boston VA, Boston Medical Center, and was a member of faculties at Harvard Medical School and Harvard Business School. From 2009 to 2011, Sachin worked in the Obama administration, where he was senior advisor to Donald Berwick, where he led the centers for Medicare and Medicaid services. Sachin graduated magna cum laude from Harvard College with a BA in government and continued to earn his MD from Harvard Medical School and an MBA from Harvard Business School. He trained in internal medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Sachin, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the show.
2: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So, Sachin, for those of our audience members who are not as familiar with your story, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood, your decision to pursue a career in medicine, and then what eventually made you choose a different path than the traditional one that Docs follow?
2: Well, like like a lot of uh, Indian Americans growing up in the United States, there's two career options. Uh, There's medicine and then there's medicine. Uh, Most people would say medicine, engineering, but um, I always tell the story of going home to um, visit my family, my, I think maybe uh, in between my first and second semester at Harvard undergrad, and uh, telling my folks that I wanted to do law school. And they said it would be great if I did law school uh, after I did medical school. And so uh, there was a not so subtle nudge in that direction. And, and you know, we I grew up in a healthcare family, but always had gravitated towards thinking about bigger picture issues in healthcare. Uh, like the healthcare system and how it works, and so um, found myself interested in healthcare policy and um, apprenticed myself to a number of kind of folks who were you know, uh, healthcare policy leaders around the time that I was in undergrad and then and then in med school, and then um, had this realization that healthcare policy changes at an excruciatingly slow pace, and that if I wanted to actually create change in the healthcare system, that I uh, might want to work at the organizational level. And so I ended up diverting, going to Harvard Business School, uh, where, uh, you know, I got to know Michael Porter a bit, worked for him for a number of years, you know, after when I went back to medical school and into my residency. Um, And then President Obama was elected president. And um, I had the opportunity to take a couple of year leave uh, from my internal medicine training at the Brigham to go work uh, first at the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT, and then subsequently at CMS, uh, where I was part of the founding team at CMMI. Uh, subsequently went back, finished my residency. Strong advice to everyone out there. If you've taken a break, finish the residency. That sense of completion is, is really important. Uh, and then went to Merck uh, to lead uh, digital health and real world data for the company uh, as its first ever chief medical information and innovation officer. I think I'm the first ever and only chief medical information and innovation officer. Uh, and then uh, was recruited out to the West Coast uh, to lead uh, Caremore, first as its chief medical officer, and then as its president and CEO, uh, eventually taking over responsibility for Aspire Health uh, as well, and then uh, was recruited to lead SCAN, uh, which is a, a nonprofit uh, organization focused on uh, promoting healthy and independent aging for seniors. We, we have about $3.5 billion in revenue, 1,200 employees. Uh, we serve uh, you know, roughly 250,000 people. Uh, that's, you know, that's that's where you meet me in uh, my journey today. So,
0: Absolutely. Thanks so much, Sachin, for that overview. And I appreciate sort of the advice you gave to our medical students and residents as well. I think it's important advice, uh, especially thinking a little bit more long term. I know a lot of docs who come to get their MBA, get a little bit caught up <laughs> with everything that's going on. Yeah, the best. Some of
2: the best advice I ever got was from my friend Tom Sang, who's a physician entrepreneur, CEO of Valera Health. But we became friends when I was in government, and he said it's important to remember that you're building for a forty-year career and uh, not a four-year career. It's very easy to get seduced by the shiny objects, uh, but you know you need to build you know foundation of that's going to support your long-term success. And I you know really am grateful to him for that advice and share it with as many audiences as I can.
0: So I appreciate that. I guess jumping into that a little bit more, just purely tactically, what would you say have been the benefits of actually finishing residency for you as you've moved through your career? Is it just signaling to other docs or building that credibility or just foundation of knowledge? What has been important in that regard?
2: Well, I think there's a number of things. One is I, you know, I continue to practice medicine, you know, very small amount, but I'm still practicing. And I think that that keeps you grounded in what's actually happening on the front lines of care delivery. Um, when I was in government, I was amazed at how quickly I forgot about the, you know kind of you know where the technology and the digital health actually meets the the patient as well as where it meets the clinicians. And I think um, it's so easy to get abstracted away from that which is actually essential and important. And so I think it helps from that perspective. I think there's also just a sense of completion that you know you've mastered this body of knowledge. And you know I think it's kind of amazing that people will do, you know, four years of undergrad, four years of medical school, three years of a surgical residency, and then go to HBS and then disappear. Um, And I think that there's like you're two years away or three years away from, you know, finishing this credential and this degree, which, and and there's something about, and this applies to business as well. There's something about seeing multiple cycles of something that actually gives you deeper and stronger intuition about it. Um, You know, at HBS, you guys use the case method. You know, there's a reason that you're using you know, 900 cases or whatever it is, and not 90 cases. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, it's that repetition. And so I think, again, that completion of that of that program, you know, it's an artificial amount of time, three years, six years, you know, whatever it is, ultimately, I think, gives you that sense of, okay, I know what this thing is about now. Versus I think when people, you know, kind of go off the path, you see it all the time, um, they, they end up not necessarily having that courage or conviction around things, or if they have it, it's made up and grounded in narcissism and not, not based in kind of real a real knowledge or real understanding of what actually is, is happening. And um, again, I'm always just blown away by the pace of change in clinical medicine. And I imagine for a second that you were to finish your residency and never see patients ever again um, and never actually set foot on the front lines of care delivery again. But then 20, 30, 40 years later, you're, you're in positions of authority. actually guide and shape the delivery of care and you're basing your perspectives on outmoded and outdated you know uh, knowledge from a from prior time Um, you know medicine you're told over and over again in medicine that you know medicine changes Um, and the only way to really kind of know that or experience that is to stick with it for a long period of time and um and so again i think that there's this um short-termism that many people who have broad interests uh, engage in, which is like, okay, I've done my medical degree. I've got to check that box. Let's, let's move on. Um, and I think it's just important to find some meaningful way to stay connected and close to the front lines of care delivery, even if you're a venture capitalist or private equity or you know, whatever else it is.
0: Yeah, and I appreciate that advice, Sachin. I call it the shiny object syndrome, and there's a lot of that at HBS. Uh, and so it's very important to stay grounded. Sort of moving on here a little bit to the work that you're doing right now. You mentioned you worked at Merck. You've had a very complex leading role as a CEO at Caremore, and then now you're at Scan. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you did at Caremore and now at Scan? And, and what is it about this work that particularly excites you?
2: Well, you know, it's to me, it's always about solving big problems for society. I think, you know... Um, you know the questions that I grapple with today are, you know, questions that um, are are really grounded in like the why. I mean, you're spending so many hours a week trying to solve, you know, a problem at work, and you know if the motivation is is kind of narrow and it's small, and the the scale of problem that you're attacking is small, at the end of the day, that's not particularly satisfying. Um, you know what we try to do at Caremore, what we're trying to do at Scan is ultimately create a better future for aging in America. Um, that's exciting. That can get you up uh, every morning uh, for all kinds of reasons. Number one, I have parents who are aging and I see f- every day how challenging it is for them. Uh, number two, uh, I look into the not so distant future and I, you know, I, I'm looking at you guys right now and I'm saying, man, I what how much fun it was to be your stage of the game. But it feels like it was also an eternity ago. And it also feels like, you know, in, t- in 20 years, I'll be five years away uh, from being a Medicare beneficiary. So it happens very quickly. So not only am I trying to create you know, a better present for my parents uh, and their contemporaries, but I'm also trying to create a better future for, for me and my contemporaries. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, there's few things more meaningful in creating a more sustainable aging infrastructure uh, both from a healthcare perspective as, as well as a social services perspective. So that's that's what gets me motivated and excited every day.
0: That's awesome. Thank you, Sachin. I was just going to ask, You know, there's so much happening in the payer space right now. As you know, there's obviously innovative sort of risk-sharing models with providers as well as with pharma, things like outcome-based contracting, a lot of digital offerings uh, to subscribers, including remote patient monitoring, telemedicine offerings, From your vantage point, what important changes in the pair landscape have taken place recently and will take place in the next 10 to 20 years that we should know about? And how do you think that's going to affect the healthcare
2: industry? So it's really interesting. I mean, what I'll tell you is is that, you know, what is new is old, and what is old is new. Um, and that, you know, all these themes and topics that you're describing as new were new when I was, you know, coming up as a as an undergraduate and a medical student and Um, you know, my very first academic article, one of my first academic articles was on gain sharing in healthcare, which is, you know, which was the language that we used at that time to talk about value-based payment. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's a perpetual belief that value-based payment is coming. And there's a perpetual belief that value-based payment will save the day. But the reality is there's only a small number of pockets in the country where provider organizations have banded together to actually take true full risk for the care of patients, which is ultimately will create the economic incentives that I think we're looking for to lower costs and improve quality. Um, and, And those are places like California, Arizona and Nevada where there's a lot of provider organizations that are willing to operate under full delegation of risk for a population of patients. Um, You know, ACOs are partial risk, upside down, you know, small percentages of of upside and downside risk, Um, you know, meaningful, but not necessarily, you know, full global risk uh, like, you know, we tend to talk about. I think one of the important observations about the full risk world is that you need to have safeguards and quality measurement in place to ensure that what you're doing is actually delivering the outcomes that you're trying to achieve for patients and populations. And I think that gets lost a little bit. You know, as we start thinking about scaling these concepts, because measurement is hard. And, you know, there's lots of unintended consequences to introducing new payment policies, some of which are predictable, and some of which are unpredictable. Uh, and so, um, you know, I think that what we've seen in the last year or two is an increasing appreciation for, you know, digital tools and digital healthcare. care. Um, but I have to say, I think once the world goes back to normal, it's going to more Readily go back to normal in part because as great as telemedicine and, and digital health has been during the pandemic, um, people are not fully hip. I think to the fact that it's also created a lot of duplication and replication. I saw a classmate of mine from HBS the other day post, you know, um, uh, you know that she has a telemedicine appointment scheduled with a physician, and you know she's being asked to self-report her blood pressure. And was it normal that she didn't have a blood pressure cuff at home? and um you know the truth is is that you know she's a late you know 40s african american woman who probably needs to have a blood pressure cuff at home in order to report her blood pressure to her physician the truth is is that people aren't prepared for this world and they aren't prepared for all the kind of things that are necessary and so a lot of what i think telemedicine is doing is introducing a certain type of new visit but it's not gonna necessarily reduce healthcare costs in the way people predict because it's creating a lot of duplication. What used to be handled in one visit is now handled in two visits, one digital and one in person. And you saw similar data, you know, I think come out of the, the development of convenience clinics like Minute Clinic, um, where you know it created this new site of care that I think siphoned off some patients whose needs could be met in a convenience clinic setting. But then ultimately created duplication of additional visits because people would first go to the minute clinics and then would show up in the emergency room. And so, um, again, I'm not you know kind of one of these folks who's blindly enthusiastic about digital tools. I think we have to always ask the question: Is what is what are the unintended consequences? What are going to be you know the new costs that are introduced to the system? And there's a reason we're in this you know healthcare innovation boom or bubble as I've called it previously. It's because people see a lot of financial opportunity here. And the, the bet that people are making is that the new investment is going to offset, you know, kind of uh, costs or expenses that are incurred in the legacy healthcare system. And I'm not sure that that is translated at all. Show me a health system or health plan that has actually shown its top line decrease because of the boom in digital, digital care, or digital medicine. It hasn't happened. And so, um, you know, there is, one thing that you learn, you know, over the years is that there's always a price to pay. There's always a, a bill coming, and I don't think we've had we we've, we've necessarily had the bill at the end of the meal yet, but it's going to be an expensive one. And, and I think we've we've got to make sure um, that we're we're thinking very carefully about where the real cost offsets are going to come. from.
0: Fair enough. I was just going to say I, the most important thing to me, it seems, are trade offs that take place with increasing digital. Encroachment in our healthcare. And I say that not in a pejorative way, but that's essentially what is happening in healthcare right now. And a lot of people forget, at least with telemedicine, that during the pandemic, you know, all of these CMS reimbursement, out of state licensure requirements were loosened, but some of it is being rolled back right now. And so, what's going to be the new plateau, the new equilibrium? You know, I don't know. Maybe you have some insight into that, but uh, who knows what's going to happen.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's great. You know, I've, you know, Pooja, each Shaker, you know, and I have written about this issue of, um, you know, medical licensure portability previously. That is not the main issue here. I mean, I think we tend to treat the, you know, the issue as being like, Oh, the portability of the medical supply you know, of the supply of physicians, That's certainly the issue in certain specialties where, you know, there is a true national scarcity, um, you know, for which a national labor pool would be very helpful but that is not what ails american healthcare. um you know, as somebody who's managed you know several billion dollar PLs, you know in the medicare managed space, you know the real issue is not you know price uh, or access. it's it's the utilization. it's the quantity factor. It's, you know. so um, you know we have, we just consume too much healthcare much of which doesn't produce any real benefit for patients. and what a lot of a lot of what's happening in the digital healthcare boom is that you know, we're just producing more acute. There's just more quantity that's being produced. Um, we're not really addressing like the fundamental co- dynamics, which is that we have probably 30 to 40% excess hospitalization rates in our country because we're not doing a better job managing people upstream. So, you know, when I was at CareMore, we looked at one metric every single day, and it was the purest metric of how we were doing as a system, which is the number of our patients that were in the hospital in an inpatient setting on every given day. We did that for two two reasons. One is it was a true measure of how good our ambulatory programs were uh, were doing as far as actually managing people with complex and chronic conditions in the outpatient setting, which is what you want to do. Um, and number two, the the inpatient cost line item is by far the most expensive cost item in the healthcare system. You know, we have a distraction in our. We talk about drug costs. We talk about all kinds of you know, kind of you know, physician salaries. We talk about all kinds of cost items. But the real, true, most significant line item on any you know managed care company's P&L is inpatient hospital spend. So the question that we're always asking is, how do you reduce the amount of hospital inpatient spend? And that's what I think we should be focusing on as a country, as a unifying principle, because it will get to this question of how do you optimally manage people upstream uh, you know, and, and manage chronic conditions in the outpatient setting where they should be managed.
0: Got it. Thanks Sachin for that overview. I wanted to shift the discussion a little bit to talking about the role of, you know, let's call them corporations, businesses in modern American healthcare. We recently interviewed Elizabeth Rosenthal, who is the author of an American sickness. And when asking her about her opinions on the high cost of healthcare in America, she said, quote, medicine in this country is primarily a business with healthcare on the back burner. You know, just talking to her, it it seemed like she was very frustrated at the merging of business and medicine uh, with an increased emphasis on profit. And you are, of course, uh, the CEO of a medical and healthcare organization, but it's also a business. And you are an MD, but also an MBA. And I was wondering what you feel is the mission of big corporations in the healthcare ecosystem, and how do you balance complex trade-offs that are associated with being a payer?
2: Yeah, so first of all, I think there's these artificial distinctions that are created in healthcare, which is, you know, for-profit and nonprofit, profit right? So I actually run a nonprofit, profit um, uh, and I can say this. I think there's non-profits that act like for-profits, and there's for-profits that act like not-for-profits. Um, you know, one of the most important courses I ever took was the business ethics course at Harvard Business School. Um, you know, which ultimately ta- taught us that, you know, you have to think about more than just the bottom line. And I think what's happened is, is that you've had a number of kind of forces enter healthcare, um, venture capital, private equity that are mostly oriented around the, that bottom line or who didn't necessarily attend those courses or pay attention to what those those courses have, had to say. Um, I think at the end of the day, you have to think about the patient. You have to think about you know, the human impact of what you're doing and too many companies are making decisions without a real, you know, too many companies or organizations for profit, not for profit are making decisions without a true line of sight into how it affects the patient or the end person um, on on the, on the other side of the decision. And so what I'm arguing for is more governance reform around that particular issue Um, because, at the end of the day, you you see again for profits that are doing the right thing, delivering great care to communities, serving communities well, and you see not for profits gouging. And so I think we you know within the medical profession there's a naivete around you know the the entry of for profit forces, which I think is neither good nor bad. Um, you know it's it just is. The question then is how do we actually create the right momentum so that you know the right things happen more more than the wrong things. Um, But the short answer is I agree with everything that Dr. Rosendahl said. I I agree that, um, you know, medicine has been, the tail has been wagging the dog in this particular case. Uh, And that's not a U.S. phenomenon. That's a global phenomenon. You look at healthcare across all markets, um, you see that happening. I think the question is, is how do you, you know, minimize and manage it uh, from a regulatory perspective? And I think that's the work that we have to undertake in the years ahead.
0: Fair enough. I'm going to pass it along. This has been a great conversation so far, Sachin. I'm going to pass it along to my colleague, Alex, who has a couple of questions.
1: Thank you, Shad. And uh, thank you, Sachin. Great conversation. And uh, I think one of my takeaway points is around the, the idea of duplication that you've mentioned. And I think one of the interesting dynamics that we're seeing today is that so many new innovations are being created, for example, in the digital health space, there seems to be a disconnect in many cases, between these innovations and users of these innovations, be it the large healthcare plans or or the healthcare systems. So I think that's kind of a very insightful point. And my first question is around mentorship. And just looking back at my trajectory, my mentors have been tremendously helpful for me. And you also talk about the impact of that mentors had on your trajectory. And you mentioned people like Donald Berwick and many others. I'd be very keen to know your thoughts on how your mentors have contributed to your career trajectory and to perhaps moving off the beaten path. And how do you approach mentorship now, given the that you are at the position of seniority?
2: Yeah, no, it's a great question and it's something I spend a lot of time thinking about, especially this year as I've, I've seen you know two of my kind of closest mentors pass away. One was Liba Lesson, who was my predecessor at Caremore, and then the other was Sam Nussbaum, who had been the chief medical officer at Anthem, uh, who passed away just last week. And both of them were just tremendous forces. And I, I, I think, you know, as I've given other people advice about mentors, is is to, is to seek people with like values and mindsets, um, and character, Uh, because at the end of the day, like those are the kinds of things that will ultimately ensure that you have, you know, the kind of relationship that will be mutually beneficial. Um, you know, mentors start out as mentors and then they become friends. Uh, they become the closest and dearest friends. And, um, we're not so careless in terms of how we think about who we choose to be our friends, our friends, some people call our chosen family. And so, um, choosing mentors is a similarly delicate art and exercise. You have to find people who I think embody the values that we we want to live with and that you know we want to define our relationships by. And so um, I would say I've just been super fortunate over the course of my career. People like Mike Rosenblatt, Leba Lesson, Sam Nussbaum, you know Barbara McNeil at Harvard Medical School, Joel Katz at the Brigham, you know countless number of folks who just I think ultimately are about the right things, are about, you know, supporting you no matter what, um, are about guiding and shaping perspectives, giving you the real talk, challenging you to think the right way about problems and ask the hard questions. Um, again, you know, you, you become your mentors over the course of your career in all, all kinds of ways. I can now say that with, with hindsight. And so I would just, you know, try to look at the kinds of people that you want to be like and seek them out. The other thing I'll just tell you is to have a realistic perspective about mentors. I think, um, you know, many people when Obama was elected president thought he was, you know, was, was a perfect human who could who, who could do no wrong. And eight years later, people who held him, put him, held him to that standard and put him on that pedestal were disappointed. And I think we've all had those experiences with mentors as well, um, which is we we regard them from afar, and then as we get closer and closer to them, we realize. Oh my God, they're human too, and so I think it's just very important to you know remind yourself that your mentors are just people. They were they were they are they are flawed. They've got character flaws. They've got you know kind of personality flaws. Um, and our job is to take the good from them and you know forgive the bad. And I think I was probably a little bit less charitable early in my career when I started to discover that my mentors weren't perfect and they weren't all knowing and all powerful. Um, and so, again, just having that realism and realistic perspective, I think, um, will will help, you know, create the enduring, you know, long term relationships that I think are, are most valuable. I think the other thing to realize is that mentoring is really a two way street. Um, you know, and I'll say um, I, uh, you know, one of the most amazing things that happened to me in, in the last couple of weeks is, you know, in the eulogy for Uh, that Sam Nussbaum, that happened at his funeral, you know, I was cited as one of his, you know, closest friends and and colleagues in business. And, and, um, and he Mm -hmm. talked about kind of the reverse mentoring that happens. And I would say I've similarly benefited from reverse mentorship, people like Brian Powers, um, you know, Pooja Shaker. these are, you know, Kin Ong, these are all now HBS, MD, MBA alums, you know, people who I uh, shepherded through uh, that process a little bit but who, you know, work with me on a number of projects and teach me about things that I need to learn about. And so again, recognizing that it's a two-way street always uh, is I think super, super valuable, Uh, you know, and, you know, recognizing that your, your mentees become your peers over time. And like all good relationships, they need to evolve as people evolve. And I think that's another thing that gets lost, which is um, sometimes we get fixed. We get fixed in certain images and roles, you know, you know, so-and-so is the mentor, so-and-so is the mentee. Um, and I think for these relationships to to be successful over the long term, they have to evolve, which is, you know, you may start out as the mentor, but then you're then the peer and then you become a friend. And I think that that's, that's the ideal model, I think, you know, from my perspective for mentorship, um, you know, is, is to see that evolution take place over time.
1: Sachin, that's a very powerful insight. And I think the point that you've mentioned around mentors not being perfect. And mentors being human, I think from my experience that, for example, seeing and learning that gave me a lot of inspiration that I can become like my mentors someday, because as humans, we are not perfect. And recognizing that people who are in the positions where we want to be in the future are also not perfect gives a lot of hope and a lot of inspiration to be in that position in the future. So now shifting gears a little bit to the MBA experience, there is a lot of opportunities for medical doctors today to kind of venture off the beaten path. And certainly, the MBA degree is one option. But at the same time, today, we have massive access to information. While previously, maybe a couple of decades ago, or two decades ago, if you wanted to learn about finance, you had to go and do an investment banking internship to get that institutional knowledge. But today, because of the increased access to information, you can easily access this information online and There's tons of tutorials, tons of learning materials. Given this dynamic, this access to information, how valuable do you think the MBA is to medical doctors who want to venture off the beaten path today? And and what you're thinking about this MBA perspective?
2: So I I recommend the MBA to everyone, even if they have a slight whiff of interest in it, because I think there's something very powerful about the immersive and transformative experience of spending 18 months, you know, side by side with, you know, people who um, are at a similar stage and place in life, who are, um, you know, many of whom have a ton of fantastic experience, but then others of whom, um, you know, I think are making a true inflection in their lives. And, uh, you know, I think that inflection is super powerful. And I think also creates, um, you know, a cohort effect of people who are going to be with you for the rest of your life uh, that you don't get off the internet. (laughs) And, um, you know, so I think there's, there's the social aspect of it. And then I think there's the academic aspect of it. I mean, I can tell you, um, I've had, I've had earned a number of different degrees and and credentials over the course of my life, but it was at the end of my MBA where, you know, people in my life said, wow, you're really thinking differently about these, you know, about your life and these sets of problems and these sets of issues. Um, because you are truly trained with a new way of thinking about things. And, you know, the two of you are both, you know, medical, uh, you know, medical professionals. Uh, ultimately, you know, you know, there's nowhere along your training that you think about problems the way people think about problems at HBS, um, you know, even if it's not rocket science. Uh, and the fact that you're engaging on a daily basis in an immersive experience around a set of issues or problems, I think is, is super powerful. Uh, and so, Again, I recommend it to everyone. I will continue to recommend it to everyone who's even got a passing interest in, you know, thinking about systems, thinking about you know larger scale transformation. Uh, you know, I think it's just a very powerful credential.
1: Thank you, Sachin. And I think building on your point in regards to uh, learning from others, I think this is something that has been really transformative for me. Because, for example, coming from Syria to Oxford and then to Harvard Business School, I imagine that the academic learning that I would get from the universities where I am would be kind of the most important learning component. But I realized that actually I learned the most from my colleagues and from the random conversations that you have or from participating in case discussions. So, um, only, so only, if you have, only if you
2: have smart friends, but that's a different story. So. <laughs> of course. I <laughs> no, of course, percent
1: <laughs> I, I guess that's one of the factors of success, right? Like finding and surrounding yourself with really smart, kind of unique people who can broaden your insight. I guess now I wanted to perhaps shift gears to a topic that's really close to my heart, which is AI and healthcare and informatics. You've had a a fascinating experience in the space with the with the ONC and working with Merck. I'm currently doing like a PhD in the space, so I'm really interested to know your thoughts on how AI is going to impact healthcare in the next five years, and specifically around kind of the drug discovery process and therapeutics. Like we're seeing some really super interesting companies evolving in that space, like Valo Health. So really keen to know your thoughts.
2: Yeah. So so look, I I, I hope that you know, AI will solve some of these very big problems and and facilitate drug discovery. I really do. But I more hope that you will kind of solve some of the more boring problems in healthcare. (laughs) Um, There is so much friction that exists in being a physician or being a patient or being a nurse in American healthcare today. And I believe that, you know, it's the non-value-added administrative work of being a patient, being a physician, or being a nurse or or other medical professional. Um, My my sincere hope is that people like you will will spend some period of your career, not just on the sexy, exciting, how do we discover a new therapy problem, uh, but will also spend the time to actually figure out how to simplify the experience of being a patient or a physician in in the healthcare system. Um, Because I, I do think that there is incredible pain that is inflicted upon people on a daily basis because we make it as challenging as it is. And so um, my hope is that, you, you know, the, the boring, unsexy problems will find, will capture the interests of people like you uh, because <laughs> uh, in the absence of that, uh, I think we're gonna continue to you know provide uh, 20 sec- 22nd century cures to people in the 18th century healthcare system. And, um, you know, I think we need to, least get to the 19th or 20th century, uh, you know, someday in the, in the near future.
1: Yes, it that's a great point because, I mean, to a certain extent, these kind of boring problems are really the infrastructure of healthcare, right? And like, if you don't have really strong communication infrastructure and data exchange infrastructure and, and all different types of infrastructure, like you cannot, it's very difficult to actually build the other layers that come on top. But, but maybe just building on that point, I wanted to get your thoughts on digital therapeutics. Right, This is a newly emerging space. Like We've seen recent approval from Peer Therapeutics. Um, we've seen a, a gamified product, with ADHD also. So I'm really curious to know your thoughts on how you see digital therapeutics and specifically prescription-based digital therapeutics being kind of adopted uh, within the healthcare system. And how much potential do you see there for them to be reimbursed by insurance and for them to taking that traditional kind of biological drug reimbursement route?
2: Yeah, I think there's tremendous potential. But I, you know, what I think is that you know, having worked in pharma and then having been adjacent to digital health for the last you know, 20 years or so, what I, what I can say is the following. The, the discipline that's applied to drug discovery is completely missing in the digital health world. Um, you know, the digital health world, you know, we're trying to, to build and sell and, you know, uh, and that's what we try to do. In the pharmaceutical industry, there's a well-worn path of preclinical development, clinical development, you know, um, you know, bench to bedside translation. Uh, and we don't have a similar amount of dis- similar kind of discipline in the digital health world. Um, and as a result, I think we've had lower adoption. As a result, I think we've had you know, kind of more skepticism about the treatment effect of these kinds of solutions, and I think what you're talking about uh, in these examples that you cited are examples of organizations that have gone the distance to actually do the hard work. Um, and again, it's not for the faint of heart. It's expensive work, and frankly, it doesn't necessarily produce the high mar- high margin molecule at the end that tr- comes from the di- from traditional therapeutic development. And so, again, I think we need to build new pathways for. You know, development and regulatory approval that match the the solution set, um, but I think that's what's going to ultimately enable the payers to take these innovations more seriously, because a lot of you know, kind of payer coverage right now, you know, in, in a lot of spaces, is a function of like I know a guy, and I, you know, what I mean by that is, um, you know, someone knows someone who says, oh, you should cover this, and you should make this available as a benefit to your members, and um, and a lot of healthcare. Business development is not about, you know, the best evidence. It's about I know a guy or gal. And I think that that's unfortunate uh, because I think there's lots of really great interventions that aren't fronted by a great guy or gal that don't necessarily get the coverage that they need to get. And, And so, again, I think that's where going back to being more rigorous is going to be very
1: valuable. Yes, Sachin, I absolutely agree. And I think there has been some like encouraging developments from the FDA, like the pre-certification program, but we need much more to kind of like speed the innovation and really encourage the innovation in that space. I guess moving to my last question, which is, this has been a fascinating uh, conversation. So how can our audience learn more about your work and follow the impact that, uh, that you're doing in your career?
2: Well, you know, appreciate it. Well, first of all, I'm always happy for people to reach out directly. You know, I can't connect with everyone all the time, but uh, you know, I do I do the best that I can. Um, So happy to do that. Uh, You know, I've uh, you know maintain a column on Forbes, uh, you know, where I publish you know once a month uh, on average, and so um, usually you get access to what I'm at least what I'm thinking about that month. Uh, But you know, uh, and and also have a presence on uh, on LinkedIn as well as Twitter where you can kind of get my, my thought of the day, uh, so to speak, uh, sometimes profound, sometimes not so profound. <laughs> um, but but, but, that's, but that's, what, uh, you know, that's, that's how I like to stay connected with
1: folks. Thank you, Sachin. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks, Sachin. Shad, that was a fascinating conversation with Sachin. I guess my main takeaway was around the thing that he mentioned that you need to really take a long-term perspective on success and on your career and think about the next 40 years rather than the next five years. And I think that is very important for our audience and for medical doctors who are thinking of going off the beaten path, because I think kind of throughout time, we go through periods of hype where a particular career direction is really interesting and everyone wants to go into it. So I think in the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s, Like investment banking, for example, was kind of the top trajectory, like all the top talent wanted to go there. Uh, Today, entrepreneurship is the massive trajectory. Entrepreneurship and tech is the massive trajectory where everyone wants to go. I think the insight that that Sachin mentioned uh, is very powerful here because it's really important to think whether pursuing this shiny career trajectory where everyone is going is actually the right thing for you to do based on how you define success in the long run. So I think kind of my personal takeaway from this is whenever I'm taking a very long term kind of decision, trying to step back and think whether there is any bias of pursuing kind of the path that everyone else is following. So I think that's a really powerful insight that I took from conversation with uh, Sachin.
0: Yeah, Alex, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think not getting swept away with the current headwinds is something that's important and that's something that everyone should actually consider. Like, Be very deliberate about the choices that you're making. And in speaking of being deliberate, I wanted to talk a little bit about mentorship. Sachin very beautifully talked about his mentors uh, throughout his entire life and also talked about some of the people that he's mentored himself. Uh, It's very interesting how, you know, one second you're the mentee and you have all these mentors, and then a few years pass, you suddenly start becoming mentors to other people. And and sometimes that transition happens, you know, before your eyes and and you don't even process it. What I'll say about mentorship, and, and this is what I took away from what Sachin mentioned, is be very deliberate about the type of mentors you choose. Don't just choose people from a variety of different industries who have succeeded. But think about where do I want to be 10, 20, 30 years down the line, and why is this person the best person to help me get there? Why is this person the best person to provide mentorship and advice along the way? Um, so just being very deliberate about finding like-minded people. You, know, you might look at someone and think he or she shares the same values, or you might look at someone and think, hey, that's the position I want to be in in 10, 15, 20 years. Those are the questions you should ask yourself when you're trying to figure out who your mentor should be. The other interesting thing about mentorship is that it's actually a two-way street, and not a lot of people appreciate it. And what I mean by that is, eventually, you'll learn a lot from your mentees as well as they grow up and bloom and and start to do their start to do all these interesting things in various spaces, right? And so Sachin talked about how he's learned a lot from his mentees as they've gone on to do make a lot of impact in various spaces. And so just think about that one day, your mentee will teach you a lot, but will also be mentors to other people. So it's a very, very important process. We all benefit from mentors throughout our entire lives. And it's important to sort of keep that going and then pay it forward. So with that, let's talk about the next episode. You know, Join us next week in a, which we'll continue to talk to interesting people and hear about their interesting stories about doctors who have achieved success in different walks of life outside of the traditional clinical and research career path. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTVP podcast, and to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify and Apple podcasts. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansoffthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. See you guys next week.